0: Good to be with you and ready to receive from God what he has for us in his word today. So Mark chapter 15, we're going to begin reading uh, where Pastor Tim left off last week, and that is in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Well, let's, let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God who inspired these words would be our teacher today, that he would guide us into truth and guard us from error. Lord, we ask you to send out your word to each of our minds and hearts and accomplish in each person that for which you send it. We pray today that your word would not return void. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you have been working, if you've been here uh, with any regularity at all, you've been working through Mark's gospel with Pastor Tim. And this particular passage... Is just so typical of Mark's literary style. Uh, the other gospel writer, each gospel writer has their own style. Sometimes a gospel writer will kind of dig into the, the sermons and the teaching of um, Jesus. Uh, Luke and his gospel will deal with details that would be of interest to him as a historian and as a physician. So he gives, for example, a lot more details about the birth of Jesus that coming from a medical doctor that the other gospel writers would not be as interested in and and would not be presenting. All of these are writing, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we have exactly what God intends for us to have in each of these gospel accounts. But this is... um, Typical of Mark's style, it is uh, just kind of a staccato. Each verse is kind of a point and then a point and then a point and then a point. There's not much time taken to, to develop it. And so we kind of have to, as we read through this passage, kind of have to pause and say, okay, what is he saying here? What's he saying here? And just kind of live in the moment. Kind of let Mark, as it were, transport us back to uh, that hill, Golgotha, the, the skull hill, if you will, um, to, to kind of experience this all over again there is a popular cereal called cornflakes Cornflakes used to have an advertising campaign and the can, and the campaign slogan was cornflakes taste them again for the first time And so that's what I want us to do as we come to this passage today I want us to to taste it again for the first time many of you have read this and are familiar with the, the account of the crucifixion but could we today just kind of transport ourselves there, and taste it again for the, for the first time. This is a text that we just almost have to tremble at because of the horror of it. And this is also a text that we just can't help but rejoice over because of the glory of it. And so here's where we're headed today. I want us to think, first of all, about the duration and the darkness and then I want us to think about the cry and the curtain. And then I want us to think about the warrior and the women. And then I want to draw some application as we close today. So that's that's where we're headed. So you can keep score and know where we are as we work our way through. So verse 33, we think first of all about the duration and the darkness. He says that when the sixth hour had come. So we, we learned last week in the passage, and, may, and maybe you knew this already, that the the Jewish day began at, six, at what we would call 6 a.m. So when he says here the sixth hour, what he's talking about is high noon. Now it was, the, uh, it was the third hour or 9 a.m. We saw in the passage last week that Jesus was nailed to the cross. So the crucifixion began at 9 a.m. And so he's been on the cross for three hours by the time we get to this verse. It is now the sixth hour. It is at now high noon. And he says, and the, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would be 3, three p.m., right? So from noon to 3, there was darkness. This duration is Im- important for us to think about. He had already been suffering on the cross for three hours. And before that, you will remember, he had endured a scourging. After Pilate uh, pronounced the sentence of death upon him, the guards, the Roman guards took him and they scourged him. They whipped him. They tied him to a post and they whipped him. It was part of the crucifixion process. It was meant to, to weaken the victim. It was meant to begin to already draw out blood from the victim. Uh, And so, he had already gone through the scourging. And uh, he is now uh, on the cross for three hours and a darkness falls on the earth. Typically, what they would do is when when the, the Roman guards were not allowed to leave a crucifixion site until the crucified one had died. Now, typically, the one who was being crucified was a criminal... Uh, was not a Roman citizen. The only Roman citizens that they would crucify were soldiers who had committed some kind of treasonous act. And so uh, typically it was a non-Roman that was being crucified, typically a criminal. Uh, They were crucified in this way both because of the torturous process that crucifixion was, but also it was a way to put on display to the public, to, to those who would be there and to those who would be passing by on the roadside to say, Oh, we, we, need, to, we need to do what we're supposed to do. We don't want to end up like that. And it was, it was kind of a public threat that you better obey Rome and do what Caesar says or you could end up on one of these. So Jesus had been on the cross for three hours by this time. Crucifixion could last typically anywhere from six hours to four days. Literally, just uh, depending on um, the stamina, depending on the hydration, um, the the scourging many times would 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 cause so much blood loss that organs would begin to shut down and and uh, there w- the, the victim would go into shock. Uh, so sometimes the victim would, would last only a matter of hours. Sometimes the victim might last uh, days. In, in Jesus' case, it seems that his crucifixion lasted for about six hours, from the, um, from the third hour until the ninth hour. When the soldiers had had enough and they were ready to be done, They would go by and end the crucifixion in one of several ways. I read an interesting article on the National Institute of Health website on the pathology of the crucifixion. So when the soldiers were ready to end it, they might come by and break the victim's legs. They might come by and ram a spear into the victim. They might come by and pound on his chest. Or they might come by and light a fire in front of that cross so that the smoke would asphyxiate that victim you see here's here's what was happening and here's what was typical a part of the crucifixion process your your feet were nailed to a post your hands or your wrists were nailed to a post and the weight of your body is pulling you down and it it's in that in that condition it's very difficult to breathe and so in order to breathe you have to pull yourself up you have to push with your legs which is excruciating On your feet which are impaled with nails and also on your hands or your wrists which are also impaled with nails but you have to pull yourself up in order to get a breath but the pain is so excruciating you can't stay there and so you have to slump back down again but after a few after a short while you can't breathe again and so you have to pull yourself up so hours of this agony this kind of suffering where you're you're the the pain is screaming as you pull yourself up but then when you slump down you can't even gasp for breath and so there's just this constant agony this constant torture of the cross and that's what Jesus had been experiencing now from the sixth hour or from the ninth hour until the sixth hour when darkness fell on the earth that's why they would break their legs because when they, when they broke their legs, they could no longer push up to get air. And they would just stay in that slump position and, and basically suffocate, asphyxiate. Uh, and so the, the um, or that's why they would light the fire, to get the smoke there where they couldn't breathe anymore. And to end the crucifixion. It's interesting though, as we, as we read this passage and compare it with other gospel passages. And by the way, that's the best way to study the crucifixion, is to use these parallel passages that we have in all four of the Gospels because none of the Gospels contain every detail related to the crucifixion. But we we see in other Gospels, Jesus say, No one takes my life. I lay it down freely. The Romans were not taking the life of Christ. He gave his life freely. When he was ready, he breathed his last. Not a moment before. And so um, he, he, he is not going to die. He is not going to breathe his last until he had fully endured the wrath of God. That was the payment that had to be made on the cross and had been satisfied against sinners. So we see here, Mark makes a point of spelling out the duration. Nine o'clock he was put on the cross at, uh, or excuse me, 9 a.m. Yeah, and then uh, at noon, darkness fell on the cross And then at 3 p.m. he breathed his last. So we kind of see what's happening here on Skull Hill or Golgotha. Then we see the darkness. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Can you imagine that? I mean, I can see the sun streaming in through that back window right now. Can you imagine? Here it is, not far from high noon right now, this Sunday morning. It was just a little bit later, it was when the sun was at its zenith, that all of a sudden things went dark. I mean dark. Dark to the point that nobody thought to bring an oil lamp. Nobody thought to bring a torch. Maybe the Roman guards had some kind of something because they always had to be prepared for anything. But those who were there to observe... Didn't have anything to, you know, there, there were no iPhones to light up the, the darkness, right? And so uh, it, it goes dark in the middle of the day. Now, some have suggested that this was a total uh, lunar eclipse. But that's where the, the moon comes between the earth and the sun and blocks out fully the light of the sun. But typically, uh, an eclipse like, a total eclipse like that will not last more than about, Seven and a half minutes at the most. And usually a total eclipse is less than that period of time. This darkness was here for three hours. So sometimes there are liberal theologians or liberal Bible scholars that want to try to dismiss or explain away the supernatural in the Gospels. But this is a supernatural event that is happening here. Three hours of darkness. Why did that happen? Well, all through the scriptures, darkness is a picture of two things. Darkness is a picture of sin, and darkness is a picture of judgment. I think both of those are coming into play when we see Jesus on the cross here at Calvary. There is sin that is being punished. There is judgment that is being poured out. And... Um, it's, it's interesting to me to think about darkness as being an expression of judgment. Let me, let me kind of take you back all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Exodus. And you remember when Moses was called to confront Pharaoh and to demand that he release the Israelites from slavery and from bondage and allow them to leave To go to the land that God had promised them. Pharaoh would say yes. Then he would say no. Then he would say yes. Then he would say no. And so God said, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to bring upon the land of Egypt ten plagues. The last plague, you will remember, was when the death angel would pass over Egypt. And every home that did not have uh, the blood of the sacrifice of the sacrificial lamb on the doorposts. Of that home would be visited by the death angel and the firstborn would be struck dead as the 10th plague that God struck against the land of Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to let the people go. That was the Passover. They were to take this lamb. They were to sacrifice it. They were to have it as part of their a ceremony or, or, or a worship meal that evening, then they would take the blood of that animal and put it on the doorpost. And when the death angel saw the blood, the death angel would pass over that house and visit the next house that did not have that blood, knowing that that was an Egyptian home and the firstborn would be struck dead. That was the 10th plague. What was the ninth plague? What was the plague right before the Passover plague? It was darkness, wasn't it? Darkness came upon Egypt for three days. In fact, the book of Exodus says the darkness was so thick, in my ESV it says, it could be felt. <laughs> now whether that is a metaphor that the darkness was so thick it seemed like you could feel it, or whether it means that it was so thick that the only way you could get around was to feel your way around. Either way, this was, this was dark this ninth plague. And so here we are in Mark chapter fifteen, and before Jesus, God's sacrificial lamb, is sacrificed, our Passover, who is crucified for us, before he breathes his last, there is darkness that comes on the land. So I, I want you to to see what's happening here. You're you're having the opportunity because of Mark's gospel, to see up close what's happening here on Golgotha. I want you to, to think about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Let me paraphrase it for you. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin, that is the Lord Jesus, to be made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him so let me let me show you that verse this way some of you are familiar with this illustration but let's imagine that my right hand here represents me and this is not my bible but instead is a book that lists every sin that i've ever committed every sin is recorded in this book Now, some of you already realize this book needs to be much thicker, okay? If that's going to be true, okay? We won't go there, and we won't open up and read anything in here, okay? But let's say that this book represents all of the sin that I've ever committed, ever will commit. It's written down, it's recorded, and I bear the weight, the shame, and the guilt of that sin. And there's nothing I can do to get relief from it. Let's say that my other hand represents the Lord Jesus Christ, sinless, spotless. The Bible says what Paul is saying is that God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul is describing theologically in 2 Corinthians 5.21 what Mark is narrating that actually happened here on the cross. There was a substitutionary atonement that was taking place. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is becoming my substitute. This darkness that has come over represents the sin that he is bearing and the judgment that God's wrath is pouring out upon that sin as Jesus bears our sin. And you get a front row seat to it right here in Mark chapter 15. Do you see what's happening here? You see what's happening physically as Mark describes it. Paul will later describe what's happening theologically. And you you see kind of behind the curtain and you see what's happening, what God is doing in redemptive history. Remember last week and the week before, Pastor Tim said a great way to study the Bible is to look at what is happening historically and culturally. And then to look at what's happening theologically and redemptively. And then to draw application from that. So that's what we want to try to do today. Hey, speaking of Christ being our substitute, think about where this is happening. This is happening on Calvary, the Latin name, Golgotha, the Hebrew name, or translated, it's the place of the skull. It's Skull Hill. (laughs) Okay? But that's not what it was called in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this exact spot was called Mount Moriah. It's on this very spot where, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham brought his son Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice out of obedience to what God was calling him to do. God had said, take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac that you love, and offer him on the mountain. They went up to Mount Moriah, this very spot. And Abraham laid the wood and... Built the fire and was ready to plunge the knife into his son to sacrifice him in obedience to God. And at the last minute, God stopped him and said, Now I know your faith. Now I know your obedience. And Abram, Abraham looked up, and right there, right in front of him, God had prepared, God had supplied a substitute. He saw a ram. A ram whose head was caught in a thorn bush. (laughs) A ram who was wearing, if you will, a crown of thorns. (laughs) And that ram was the substitute for Isaac. Where did that happen? It happened on Golgotha. It happened on Mount Calvary, Mount Moriah. The same location where God provided a substitute for Isaac, God is now providing a substitute for sinners through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We sang the hymn, and I appreciate you adding the hymn, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. 314 years ago, one of my favorite hymn writers, Isaac Watts, wrote that hymn. We sang the first verse today. When I surveyed the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Well, I want you to see this morning, not only the duration and the darkness, but I want you to see the cry and the curtain. So, continue reading with me now in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Now, forgive me if my Arabic is not as good as yours, or Aramaic, excuse me, if my Aramaic is not as good as yours. I'm going with the Pronunciation that my Bible software gave me on that phrase. But Mark doesn't make us guess. He gives us the translation. He says, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, beholding, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. My God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? This is the only thing that Jesus says from the cross that is recorded for us in Mark's gospel. It's also recorded for us in Matthew's gospel. And it's the only thing that Jesus said from the cross that Matthew records. But again, when you put all all of the gospel narratives together of the crucifixion account, you see that actually the biblical writers record seven different things that Jesus said from the cross. The first thing, if, if we can kind of put the chronology together by comparing these parallel passages, the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The context there in Luke's gospel seems to be Mean that he is referring specifically to the Roman soldiers. Who have nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. Who have affixed the sign above him that says the king of the Jews. The ones who are torturing and taunting him. He turns and says father forgive them. For they know not what they do. Then there begins to be this unbelievable conversation between the other two criminals that are been crucified on either side of him, one to his right, one to his left. There's a conversation there. There's some jeering. One of the, one of the thieves says, don't you even fear God? This man's here, not because of what he's done. Uh, we're here because of what we've done. This man has done nothing wrong. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the words of Jesus from the cross in Luke's gospel are, truly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. And then we would expect anybody, we would expect anybody going through this horrendous, uh, or this heinous, horrendous torture on the cross to be thinking about nothing but I've got to find relief. What can I do to ease this pain? And yet we see the Lord Jesus Christ not focused on himself, but at one point focused on his mother who is there at the foot of the cross. And we see him say to her, as she is there sitting or kneeling or standing beside the apostle John, who it seems is the only apostle who showed up that day. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But he says to her as he looks at John, Woman, behold your son. And then he says to John, Behold your mother. In other words, take care of her. Make sure she's provided for and in compassion, instead of focused on himself, he focuses on his mother and on her needs. And then the fourth saying of the cross is what we see here, where he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In John's gospel, we will read that after that he says, I thirst. And then he says, It is finished. And his final words from the cross that the Bible records are, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've read it already this morning from Psalm 22. Pastor Tim referred to Psalm 22 last week when he was talking about how the soldiers were casting lots and gambling for the garments of Jesus At the foot of the cross. They were playing games at the foot of the cross. And uh, Psalm 22 refers to that. The first verse in Psalm 22 is actually this verse that Jesus quotes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus confidently knew and was communicating that the Messiah who was addressed in Psalm 22 uh, was him. That he was the rescuer. He was the Messiah, the Christ who had been promised to come. And so it's, it's amazing that he even had the physical strength, the emotional strength to, to cry out. He says, my God, my God, I, I can remember on more than one occasion hearing Dr. Sproul talk about the times in the Bible when God would call someone's name Twice. We already looked at uh, or or considered Genesis 22, where Abraham had to uh, sacrifice his son Isaac. And when the angel of the Lord told him to stop, the angel said, Abraham, Abraham, (laughs) Abraham, Abraham, now I know that you're willing to obey. Now I know that you trust me. We, we go on from there to Genesis 46 and we see where God was calling Jacob to go down to Egypt. And while he was in Egypt, God was going to make of him a great nation. And God says to him in that call, Jacob, Jacob. We go to Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is out on the backside of the desert in Midian. And God appears to him in a burning bush and calls Moses to go confront Pharaoh and to deliver his people through the Exodus from Egypt into the promised land. And when he calls, when God calls to him from the burning bush, what does he say? Moses, Moses. We go to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, where God is calling Samuel to the ministry and calling him to prophesy against uh, the house of Eli and to pronounce judgment on the house of Eli. You remember that story how uh, Samuel thought it was Eli calling and it wasn't and go back and it wasn't and go back and it, back and it wasn't and he said, listen, next time this happens, say, speak, Lord, your servant here.'" And when it happened again, the voice said, Samuel, Samuel, as he was calling Samuel to the prophetic ministry. We go to the New Testament. Remember that time in, in Bethany when Jesus is at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And they're getting things ready for a meal. And Martha is busy preparing, setting the table, cooking the food. And she's getting kind of frustrated because her sister Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his teaching. And so finally, she asks Jesus to get onto her and to rebuke her and to get her in the kitchen where she belongs. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen the more important thing. And then we think about um, when, uh, right before the denial of Peter, Jesus tells Simon Peter that he's about to be sifted as wheat by Satan. And he says to him, Simon, Simon. Satan's desire is for you and he will sift you as wheat and then promises the restoration of Peter that will come. And then here we see in Mark chapter 15 that, that Jesus is calling someone's name again two times. And it, it is when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think of the second verse of what's him we sang it this morning, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Look at what it says in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema sabachthani," which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you, what does it say? Forsaken me. Forsaken. He was forsaken by men, but now we see through Mark's narrative, he was forsaken by God. Now, it's not that there was a breach in the Godhead. (laughs) There was not a separation between God the Father and God the Son, but there was a separation between God the Father and Jesus in his humanity. It is a mystery of the Trinity that I can't unpack or explain. But but there is a forsaking that happens here on the cross. You see, what was happening was all of God's holy, fiery wrath that was against sin was being poured out on Jesus in that moment. That was the, that was the cup that Jesus had prayed, let this cup pass from me. What was in that cup? That cup was filled with the wrath of God. If you could take every, every Old Testament believer who trusted, as Abram did, trusted the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. If you could take every believer of the Old Testament and line them up. And then take every person who has trusted Christ as Savior from the time of Christ until today. And put them in that same line. And then if you could take everybody that's on the planet today, including you, including me, if you're you're a Christ follower, and add them to that line. And then if you could also put behind us everybody who will ever in the days ahead come to know Christ as Savior and put them in a long line of humanity and let each of them step up to that cup and put into that cup every sin that they have or will ever commit and put it in that cup. Every deceitful lie, every vile thought, every angry word, every act of stealing, every lustful leer, every, every sin that we will ever commit to be, to be put in that cup and then to have the wrath of God poured out on all of that sin. That's what's happening in this moment in Mark chapter 15, all of God's wrath is being born by the Lord Jesus Christ. I I can't get my head around that. It's hard for any of us to really fully understand. In fact, you know who would understand that the clearest and the best this morning? It's the person that is in hell right now. Who is experiencing at least a piece, a season, a chapter of that wrath. And you see when we go to hell. I don't believe in the annihilationism. That, that we only suffer for a while. And then poof it's done. I believe the Bible teaches. That the torment in hell lasts forever. And ever and ever and ever. And so the punishment. That is being poured out on those in hell. This morning is not finished. Because eternity is not done. <laughs> but they have a better idea. Of what that wrath is like. Than any of us ever could let let me ask you let me ask you a theological question okay you didn't know there was gonna be a quiz today but let me ask you this question why does a person have to spend eternity in hell in order to endure God's punishment for their sin when Jesus only spent six hours on the cross? If he's really our substitute, shouldn't he have to be punished forever and ever and ever the way sinners are punished forever and ever and ever in hell? Why, why would a sinner have to go die in their sins, separate from God, and spend eternity in hell when Jesus, who took that punishment for us, spent six hours on the cross? Well, here's the best way I can try to explain that. It is because Jesus, being infinite, suffered in a finite period of time what you and I, being finite, would have to suffer in an infinite period of time. All of God's wrath, like a laser, was concentrated on the cross, on these hours, as Jesus bore our sin. Again, from Isaac Watts, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? We see here that some, I don't believe, mistakenly thought he was calling for Elijah, I think mockingly said he was calling for Elijah. Oh, you know this guy? He says he's the Messiah, the Christ, the Rescuer. And we know that before the Rescuer comes, that Elijah is going to come as his forerunner. So maybe he's calling for his forerunner. Because he's running out of time. The clock is ticking. He's about to die. And so Elijah better show up quick. Or else there won't be a forerunner for this Christ. That's the tone. That's the spirit that I think is being communicated here in verse 35. And someone ran, verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. Some of your Bibles say wine mixed with vinegar. Some of your Bibles say cheap wine. I don't care how you translate it. It sounds pretty disgusting. <laughs> Whether it's sour, cheap, or mixed with vinegar, they run and offer that to Jesus, put it on a reed, and give it to him to drink, saying, wait, you know, let's, let's try to Let's try to keep him alive a little bit longer. Let's see if Elijah really will show up. Again, the mocking that's taking place here. Let's wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And verse 37 says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Most Bible scholars believe that that loud cry was not just a a grunt or a groan, but was actually what John records when Jesus said, It is finished. It is finished. Tetelestai in Aramaic. Tetelestai. It's, it's really it's a financial term. And it means paid in full. Paid in full. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. When we see the cry, I want us to also see the curtain. Look at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's it. That's all Mark gives us. And there's so much there. What in the world is he talking about? What is this curtain? It was the the veil in the temple. Whether it was the veil that separated the outer court from the holy place... Or most Bible scholars believe it was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies or the most holy place. You see, in the temple court, there was the court for the women. Then there was the court for the Gentiles. And then there was the outer court where only the priests could go. And then there was the holy place where only the priests could go. Uh, The outer court was outside. There was the basin and the altar there. Then you go inside to the holy place and there's the table of showbread and there's the candlestick there. Then there's another curtain that leads into the back room. The back room is the Holy of Holies, some of your Bibles call it. Some of your Bibles call it the most holy place. And there's this veil that separates the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And in the Old Testament, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant... Most Bible scholars believe that by the time that that Jesus was incarnate on the earth that that the ark had been lost during the Babylonian captivity some 6 centuries before. We don't know for sure, but but the ceremony for the day of atonement would would continue. And so this veil, most most Bible scholars believe it was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And it would be in that Back room in that holy of holies, that most holy place where the high priest would go. He was the only man, only person on the planet that was allowed to go in that room. The only person on the planet that was allowed in that room. And he was only allowed there one day out of every year. On the day of atonement. The day that today we call Yom Kippur. So one day a year. One man and only one man. The high priest. Could go into that holy of holies. That most holy place. And he had to go with blood. That would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. I don't know exactly how that happened. Once the ark was gone. If there was a a place or a way that they... Applied that blood that we don't really know. Historians haven't really told us. We don't really understand that. But if anybody went in that room other than the high priest, they would be struck dead. And if the high priest went in that place any other time than the day of atonement, he would be struck dead. Let me tell you how serious this was. This was so serious that they would take the robe that the high priest would wear. And on the bottom hem of that robe... They would sew in little bells so that he goes into the Holy of Holies and as he's walking around and he's applying the, the blood for the sacrifice of the sins of the people, they can hear him walking around because they can hear the bells. They can't see him because they can't see through the veil, can't see behind the veil, but they know he's in there because they can hear him walking around. He also had a rope tied around him. You know why he had a rope tied around him? Because if he goes in there and has a heart attack or is struck dead, Or something happens to him. And those bells stop ringing. (laughs) And they say, are you okay? Hello? And there's no reply. They're not allowed to call EMTs to rush in there. They're not allowed to go in there themselves and drag him out. They pull that rope. And they drag him out that way. (laughs) Because this was such a holy, sacred place. Only the high priest could go in. And only on the day of atonement. And so uh, this veil is separating the holy place where the table of showbread and the candle stand was. Where the priests would do their duties inside the temple. But only the high priest would go in that most holy place. And it was separated by this veil. This veil was 30 feet high. I have no idea how tall this ceiling is. But this ceiling is not 30 feet high. So I don't know if you have a curtain in your house that's 30 feet high, but this curtain was 30 feet high, and it was 30 feet wide, okay? A 30 by 30 uh, foot curtain, 20 cubits by 20 cubits, which would be 30 feet by 30 feet. And most Bible scholars, it was the Old Testament says it was, it was woven together with threads of blue and red and purple, which were the costliest dyes. And that embroidered on that curtain were cherubim or angels. And most Bible scholars say that the the thickness of that curtain. These are not just blackout curtains like you would have maybe in your bedroom. These curtains were, they say, the thickness of the breadth of a man's hand. Probably about four inches thick is this curtain. So when the Bible says that this curtain was torn from top to bottom. This was... This was not something that even the strongest bodybuilder could pull off. This, this curtain, 30 feet up in the air, begins to tear, begins to separate. It's, it's that thick. It's the thickness of the width of my hand, this curtain. And it begins to tear. You see, in the Old Covenant, the relationship with God often is marked by distance, by distance. But when Jesus died, that curtain was torn, and now it's marked by nearness and intimacy, and we can draw near to God. I wish we had time to go to the many passages in Hebrews that, that talk about this and the access we've, we've been given, but time doesn't allow us to do that This curtain is torn from heaven to earth, from top to bottom, this thick curtain. And now that curtain that separated, that curtain that made distance between us and God, now we've been given access. And we can come, the writer of Hebrews says, boldly into his presence. No longer do I have to have a high priest enter on my behalf. No longer do I have to wait till next year for the day of atonement before he can go in and represent a sacrifice for my sin. No longer do I have to let somebody else do that, but I've been given access. No longer does a veil separate me from a holy God. No longer is my relationship marked by distance, but by nearness. There's a verse to the hymn that Watts wrote that we didn't sing today. And these are the words to that verse. Verse. His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe to me. Let me close by looking very quickly at the warrior and the women. Look at verse 38, or excuse me, 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The centurion was a Roman army officer in command of a hundred men. He was most most likely the supervisor of this particular crucifixion. He oversaw uh, what the men were doing as they crucified Christ. He was accountable directly to Pontius Pilate. If we look down in verse 44, we would read, Pilate was surprised to hear that, that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion... He asked him whether he was already dead. This this man reported directly to Pilate. So he was the one that would assign who would drive the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. He was the one that would assign who would affix the sign that said King of the Jews to the cross above Jesus' head. He had a front row seat to the crucifixion. He watched the manner in which Jesus died. He had crucified others many times. He was a professional at this. A professional executioner and doubtless those other times those who were crucified were vile and profane they resisted they struggled they fought against but that's not what he sees with Jesus he watched as Jesus die and it's as though the Romans were not in charge of him but that he was in charge of what was happening here and he heard Jesus say father forgive them For they don't know what they're doing. He knew the men. He had ordered the men who had performed the scourging, the whip that was threaded with sharp pieces of bone and metal that would shred Jesus back into ribbons. And they had mocked him and they had driven a crown of thorns into his head. He watched as Jesus showed mercy to the repentant thief to his side, showed compassion to his mother and the apostle John. And, and maybe this centurion didn't understand everything that was happening. But he saw enough and knew enough of what was happening on Skull Hill that day. He saw Jesus commit his spirit into the hands of the Father and breathe his last and die. He wasn't a theology student, but he had never seen a man die like this man. And everything maybe he had heard the man say in town... Being stationed there in Jerusalem, he was likely familiar with the ministry, the teaching, the miracles of Jesus. Everything that he had heard this man say and seen him do, everything that he had heard his followers say, all began to ring true with him. He saw through the lies of the false accusations and trumped up charges that those who brought him to this trial had made. And his testimony is truly, this man was the son of God. Do, do you remember, it's been a while, do you remember how this gospel opened? That was 16 months ago that you guys started studying the gospel of Mark. Today is the 70th sermon in this series. Did you realize that? So you may not remember how it begins, but Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now that's the testimony of this centurion. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Later in chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism, God the Father would say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. A couple chapters later, in chapter 3, Jesus is casting out demons, and the demons say, You are the Son of God. A couple chapters later, in chapter 5, there's so many demons in one guy that they call themselves legion. And his legion is cast out. He says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? On the Mount of Transfiguration, God speaks again and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And now here on Skull Hill, (laughs) the testimony of this centurion is truly this man was the son of God. Dear friend, you can't be saved apart from that testimony. That truly Jesus is the son of God. You must recognize that he is God before you can be saved. And if you deny that Jesus is the Son of God, you cannot be saved. You are not a Christian. I want you to see not only the warrior but the women. Look at at verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. the disciples most likely they're hiding all except the apostle John the disciple that Jesus loved these women were devoted followers of Christ who were with him even when the apostles were hiding they had supported his itinerant ministry taking care of the needs that he and his team had We see them here at the crucifixion. We will turn a few pages and see them as they prepare spices to bury his body. And we'll see them at the resurrection as well. They're not ashamed to be identified as Christ's followers. Mark does something that's kind of uncharacteristic for him. He begins to list names. Typically, he just speaks in broad generalities, but he he lists names here. Mary Magdalene, oh, she has quite a story. Jesus cast seven demons out of her. She knew what it was to be in bondage to sin. She knew what it was to live in darkness. She knew what it was to meet Jesus and be delivered and redeemed and forgiven. And she's there at the cross with him. She was the first to the empty tomb. She was the first to report to the disciples, he's not here. She was the first to see the resurrected Lord. There is... Uh, another Mary, and, and typically some of the other Gospels call her the other Mary. There are a lot of Marys in this scene, just like we have Hannah's, a lot of Hannah's at RBC. There are a lot of Marys in this story. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's not mentioned in Mark's Gospel, but we see in John's Gospel that she's here at the foot of the cross. There is this other Mary. Um, there is Salome, who possibly was the father of James and John, um, who is here at the foot of the cross. The, the scripture gives an honored place to these women in a day when this culture would denigrate women and sometimes view them as nothing more than property. That's not the view of the scriptures. It's not the view of the Lord. It's not the view of our great God. John Calvin notes that Mark mentions these women almost as a reproof to the male disciples, that those whom he called and would commission as apostles were less faithful than those who would not receive the apostolic office. Well, let me close by just mentioning these applications. We won't even delve into them. One is this, the darkness of your sin. Where is your sin today? Does it remain on you? Or have you trusted Christ and him alone to save you? Where is your sin today? Do you ever come to the point where you wonder if God really loves you? This passage is a poignant reminder. Oh, he does. He does. Do you ever feel like God has forsaken you? Let me tell you that Jesus was forsaken by God so that you would never be forsaken by God. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. God desires for you to draw to Him. No longer is your relationship marked by distance. You've been given access, and you can come boldly into His presence. He desires intimacy with you. I think about when you come to the Lord's table on Sunday morning. This passage should impact the way we approach the Lord's table as we are conscious of the sin that caused Christ's sacrifice and the judgment that was poured out on Him. And I think, as I read this passage, that I don't know about you, but because he died for me, I want to live for him. The last verse of Watt's hymn, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray together. Precious Lord Jesus, how grateful we are that you came and gave your life for undeserving sinners like us. And forever may we live for you. And forever may your praise be upon our lips. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.